Well, I sure was disappointed to see that the innovator Do Kwan was arrested. You know, he really had the whole stablecoin thing figured out. He just needed a, a few more billion to make it work. And the man's come after him. And it's just, it's a shame that they seem to have finally arrested him and thrown him in some dark, dingy jail cell. It honestly couldn't have happened to a nicer sociopath, in my view. He never wanted to harm anyone with his Terra Luna explosion and his other scams that he's pulled, but it seems finally the, the long arm of the law has caught up with him. And the fun thing about Doquan is that he, under an anonymous account, created an algorithmic stablecoin very similar to Terra Luna, and it blew up. And then he went and got VC funding and worked with a couple of, I think, hedge funds. I forget the names. I want to say Jump Crypto might have been involved. And they created this ecosystem of the so-called stablecoin Terra that was supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, the speculative altcoin Luna that was just a, you know, made up token worth whatever you think it's worth. And then they tied this together into an ecosystem that drove people to buy Luna and lock it up by creating a, a platform called Anchor. And Anchor was this sort of a, I don't know even what to call it. You would put your Luna into Anchor and you would get a return. Yeah, it was staking. But that was paid from the Luna that all of Doquan's investors got in the presale. Yeah, yeah. So they essentially realized, you know, okay, we can get a billion dollars of Luna, but we'll never be able to sell it without crashing the price to zero. So we'll give away some of it to incentivize people to buy and hold it so we can use them as exit liquidity more effectively. Yep. And so you just stake your Luna in there and then you would get the rewards. You would get the APY, as they called it, would be outrageous. It would seem impossible. And then all of a sudden uh, people would start panicking because the amount would start to draw down and there'd be this discussion online about, oh, oh, no, the liquidity in Anchor is dropping. And then all of a sudden a huge infusion of mysterious cash would land and that APY would just keep on ripping and everybody would have a great time. No problem. Don't ask any questions. When Terra Luna blew up, it was a sort of slow moving disaster. And it was kind of like the first financial explosion that then started off yeah. the massive deleveraging yep. of, because at first it was Terra Luna, then was it Celsius, then it was BlockFi, and then Three Arrows Capital blew up, and then a little while longer, FTX blew up, you know. It all really started when the Fed started tightening and money became tighter and the, the VC started tightening up. All of these projects that were pumped up full of money uh, started to dry up. It just blew up so fast. And I can remember it because I was at my computer and I was watching the discussion on Twitter. And I remember when Do Kwan tweeted, you know, steady lads, we're going to be injecting a little more liquidity. Everything's going to be fine. Now I feel like I see all the banks essentially saying the same thing that Do Kwan was saying as Terra Luna was collapsing. Exactly. That was exactly where we were headed. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on March 24th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here, as always, sometimes remotely with me, Chris, still staking that Luna. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go big, everybody. It's going to bounce back. <laughs> there are people. Unfortunately, it's actually a thing. People are still trying to make money on it. This week, we're going to discuss 
SEC, Security and Exchange Commission Enforcement. Coinbase has received a Wells notice, a threat of impending legal action. This was hinted at a few weeks ago, but now we have confirmation. The SEC is also going after Justin Sun, the founder of the crypto scam Tron. He's done lots of scammy things, so it'll be interesting to talk about that. Also, I believe Justin may have some sort of diplomatic immunity that he purchased, so that'll be a fun story to watch. Hindenburg Research, an activist short-selling investment firm, has published a scathing and perhaps a little, um, what's the term, hyperbolic report about Block. The U.S. fintech company behind Cash App will look at what the allegations are, if there's some fraud. It's kind of an interesting debate around KYC and AML. In economics and banking, I've combined that section just because of the last couple of weeks. The U.S. Federal Reserve is highlighting a new policy where they're essentially going to hit the gas and the brakes at the same time. So the goal will be to reduce the size of their balance sheet while stealthily injecting money into the banking system to prevent a financial catastrophe. Let's see how it works out for them. Central banks globally are panicking and announcing policy coordination through dollar swap lines. Uh, Interesting bit of history in that program. And the economic report of the U.S. president has been released, and one-sixth of it is about Bitcoin. So it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I feel like this report is like looking into the subconscious fears of the U.S. executive branch administration. It's it's pretty wild. And then we have Bitcoin Optech 243 with a huge number of software updates and some interesting news about a kind of fintechy bank that is enabling lightning transactions. And then we have a bunch of boosts. And that's our show. Lightning transactions with a bank. This is an interesting episode. It's a, it's a nice range of topics this week. Now, Chris, you and I are big fans of the BitTorrent peer-to-peer file sharing protocol, especially because it's clearly an inspiration for some peer-to-peer technologies in Bitcoin. But did you know that there is a BitTorrent foundation in the United States? Yeah, I don't like the way any of that's gone. It's such a shame. I, I even for a brief period of time experimented with publishing the shows using BitTorrent Sync, which used BitTorrent technology behind the scenes to do file synchronization. That was awesome for distributing like bonus content. But then at some point they started this foundation thing. And I don't know, it just seems like it, it got a takeover. I kind of lost track with it after that. It seems that actually there is a foundation, but there was also a BitTorrent Incorporated. Yeah. And they made Rosilio Sync or something like that. And did you know that Justin Sun purchased BitTorrent several years ago, the company? <laughs> no. You didn't okay. know that? All right. No, I didn't know. <laughs> There's actually a pretty incredible article. I want to say it's from Wired or maybe The Verge about this because it describes how Justin Sun, he arrived at the BitTorrent office and he started just like shouting at everybody. He like screamed at his assistant because she scheduled a doctor's appointment. He was like, where's the doctor? And she's like, well, we have to take an Uber to go to the doctor. And Justin's like, are you kidding me? The doctor comes to me. And everyone thought, what is up with this guy? Why is he acting so crazy? And when I read all that, I was like, oh, I know this guy. This guy is a Tuha Jin, a golden potato. He's a, in in China, there's this basically a nouveau riche. It's someone who comes from very humble beginnings. Uh, Their parents probably had um, farmer written on their identity card. It just means you live in a village and, you know, you probably farm. And in Chinese society, that's, you know, really low level, you know, that's kind of looked down upon. And so when people like John, who, uh, when people like Justin, who come from humble beginnings, get rich in China, 
there isn't like humility and sensitivity and the sense that, oh, I come from humble beginnings and therefore I understand how hard life is for everybody. Instead, they just turn into these tyrants that are like total jerks to everybody. And that's kind of the, my two cents on the personality of Justin Sun. So he's uh, 32 years old um, and a Wikipedia lists his occupation as diplomat, entrepreneur and businessman. <laughs> Business. uh, and, of course, and he's known for being the founder of the Tron DAO. My understanding is that Tron is a more centralized Ethereum clone. It has a permissioned sort of master node structure, I think. So if you want to be a Tron node, I think there are only 21 Tron nodes. They're all controlled directly or indirectly by Justin Sun. But it's one of these scams that takes Ethereum and further centralizes it to create more throughput. So it's kind of like you might think of it as like the Bitcoin cash of Ethereum, maybe. And Justin actually fled China at one point. The Chinese regulators were cracking down on crypto scams in China. And Justin got out of the country right in the, the nick of time. If his flight had been a day later, I don't think we would be talking about him today because he would have been sort of disciplined by the state and repented. But instead, he went to the US and he bought BitTorrent and he created another scammy cryptocurrency based on BitTorrent. And finally, things have caught up with him because the SEC is essentially suing him or I don't know if it's I don't think it's a criminal charge. I believe it's a it's always a civil charge from the SEC because uh, essentially he has been manipulating the price of both Tron and BitTorrent token in Telegram groups. And, you know, there's clearly a lot of evidence of how he was uh, performing uh, wash trading and doing all sorts of things to create the uh, illusion of a functioning market for these tokens. But the real goal was to essentially lure in unsophisticated retail investors so he could dump his bags on them. Of course, it's always basic. You can wrap it up and all these other. What is it? The term you can put lipstick on a pig, you know, that kind of thing. You can you can call it what you want, but you can put gold on a potato. Yeah. It's interesting because the SEC seems to be firing the machine gun of enforcement actions into the crowd that is the crypto economy. And a couple of those bullets are hitting deserved targets like Justin Sun. Yeah. And another one in there, Jake Paul, a YouTuber who has run multiple scams on his young YouTube audience. And because he primarily has, you know, young kids and he's run multiple scams on them over and over again. It's nice to see him here. And there's others, of course. I think probably the one that's grabbed the most headlines has been Lindsay Lohan is getting uh, also targeted by the SEC. Right. And this shows you the incentives of crypto scamming, because in this economy we have where you can use a digital platform like Twitter to turn your notoriety or fame or following into like, how do you monetize that? And the answer is you pump a crypto token. You basically incinerate, incinerate your reputation in return for a commission. And obviously, you know, Lindsay Lohan, she was a very up and coming actor before personal problems kind of derailed that career. And now, you know, what do you do? She's still sort of a name brand, so you can monetize. In a way, it's understandable, right? Because if you think about everything that these people promote and sell, they sell, you know, f fake makeup, they sell fake food, they sell fake everything. Everything they sell is a crap product, just a, a money grab. And so what's the difference between some crapped up crypto token and, you know, a moisturizer that's 90% water? 
if you think about it, what these guys are and gals are getting paid for these days, these scams, they're just new evolved crappy products. And we have a market full of crappy products that people don't need. And so how do they even differentiate? You know, because they're not technical. I don't think they can. You know, they probably have a rep, gets a hold of them. You know, we've scheduled them for this day. You know, here's the script. Post this. Do the hashtag, you know, sponsored. And, uh, you know, you make you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 grand. And that's a great point because on the one hand, maybe crypto scamming is better than pushing fake diet supplements because at least it's not going to poison you and it doesn't create a huge amount of waste because there are all these cheap products that do cost real resources to consume but they're generally you know made in china and of very low quality and you know there's a lot of energy and pollution that's produced to create this crap and then they're kind of you know they're really just a token that that uh, is used to justify this kind of scammy promotional bs uh activity so with the crypto token you cut out all of the physical world cost and you just you know it's like you're scamming and so maybe there that's almost an improvement right yeah we've distilled scamming down you know like humanity always does we take something and we distill it down to its purest form so we can measure it and quantify it and distill it out and that's what we've done with scams and uh you know these uh celebrities they're just uh, playing their role like they always have the problem is when you distill scamming into like pure weaponized altcoin scam the scope is potentially greater because i don't think that yeah someone's going to look at lindsay lohan's twitter and buy a hundred thousand dollars of moisturizer and then you know it's going to ruin their life but they might buy a hundred thousand dollars of tron token and then they lose all their money and they ruin their life or luna so with a financial technology there's sort of like potentially greater risk if you kind of fall for the marketing gosh it just seems like it'd be so helpful if if somehow there was some sort of financial platform that no single individual or group of individuals controlled and then they wouldn't be able to manipulate that platform to make money and then if there was such a thing that no one person or group or individual controlled then we could all kind of trust and use that thing and it would probably be pretty sound system i just you know i just can't think of anything that does that too bad there's just nothing that handles that you've nailed the problem right there because Bitcoin is a decentralized public good. There is no representative to call Lindsay Lohan's representative and say, Lindsay, you got to promote this Bitcoin thing and here's a commission. There's no way to do that transaction because there is no centralized issuer of Bitcoin that can pay for a marketing budget. So the simple fact that you see celebrities endorsing a token project means that it's a scam. Exactly. There's no marketing department at Bitcoin calling up uh, and negotiating with Lindsay Lohan and Jake Paul's agent on an ad rate for an ad buy. You know, there's just no Bitcoin marketing department. And so it's just how you, you know there's a centralized, there's somebody. And even if it isn't a foundation or a group of developers or whoever that are hiring it, then it's some whale manipulating the price. And even that right there is a big red flag. And Coinbase has gotten a red card in the form of a Wells notice. Oh, they revealed this in a blog post on the 22nd, March 22nd. And the thing is, I think that on the one hand, Coinbase and Brian Armstrong, their CEO, who I find really irritating, who's a huge Ethereum shill, they might have some reasonable criticisms of the way that the SEC has handled this enforcement action. On the flip side, we all knew that Coinbase was a crypto exchange full of centrally issued altcoin scam tokens, and they had a business model of dumping those on their customer and front running their customers. And 
putting crappy tokens with no value right next to Bitcoin on the front page. And then people would click on them because they'd say, hey, Bitcoin's 20K, but this butt coin is five cents. I'll buy some of that. Maybe it'll go up to 20K. That's their entire that was their entire business model. It was fundamentally deceptive. Let's not forget. Also, in, in terms of Ethereum, they're like the third largest staking provider. So they're participating in the very centralization of Ethereum. They're part of the problem that makes it a security. It's ironic in that sense. There are some nuances with this Wells notice. I think one of the issues is all of the unregistered securities on the Coinbase platform. That's all of these coins like I I don't even want to say any names, but basically any coin that's not Bitcoin on there is very likely an unregistered security. And on top of that, I think part of the problem is, is that it seems that there's some implication that Coinbase may have invested in some of these as well when they listed them. And I think that's also a securities violation of some kind. I think that's in there, too. Essentially, like if you've got a business that is selling you a token, but also buying it first with the expectation of selling it to you, that's a huge conflict of interest. You know, you don't want to do business there. That's not appropriate behavior in registered securities dealers in the U.S. And like it or not, Coinbase, if you've got more than Bitcoin on your platform, you're dealing with securities that should be registered. So Coinbase knew that they didn't want to believe it because it really hurt their business model. And now they're complaining that the SEC has finally gotten around to trying to punish them for it. Finally doing the obvious thing that they could have done a year ago, and they could have saved a lot of people a lot of money. What Coinbase is saying is, hey, you know, we were approved to go public. And in our documents, we said the word staking 57 times. So why didn't you stop us then? They're going to use this logical fallacy, which is, hey, we kind of gave you a hint we were going to break the law. So why are you enforcing the law now? Like you should have stopped us ages ago before we broke the law. Yeah. You know, the answer is that's not how the law works. An enforcement action, just because you you know tell a police officer you're going to commit a murder doesn't mean he has to arrest you right then. You know, he might not feel like it, Brian. I think Coinbase's version of a soft landing is they get the SEC to specify specifically which coins are a security, which is bad for those coins. But then and then Coinbase could remove those individual because I think they're probably happy as long as they can keep Ethereum. You know what I think? So Brian Armstrong, the CEO, he has a real strong position in his Twitter thread where he announces this Wells notice. But I think what betrays their optimism and kind of shows you that they're hedging their bet is that whole optimistic blockchain thing that we covered a few weeks ago that they're working on. Base. Yeah, base. It's a, a DeFi system for them that they could probably launch. And then there also was this trial balloon headline that came out about a week ago where Coinbase said they're thinking about launching some offshore stuff. Did you see that article that was floating around? Right. So I think that the writing on the wall is that Coinbase is going to try to do the thing where they're like, listen, don't regulate us. We're a big company. It would hurt the economy. We'd have to fire people. And so there is some sort of inbuilt incentive for states and businesses that rely on Coinbase to kind of lobby on their behalf. At the same time, Coinbase is clearly trying to think of plan Bs where they move their operations overseas or they try to pivot and say, hey, listen, we're doing all this stuff on this decentralized base protocol that we control. And it's just complicated enough to be sort of annoying to sue. So don't come after us because we've created this kind of wall of complexity around our business that'll be hard to enforce rules on us. At the same time, this legal action is going to take years and it will be very costly for the SEC to attack Coinbase. So 
Coinbase is definitely going to be around for a, a while longer, I think, unless something terrible happens to their stock price or they have a hack or who knows. And Coinbase may be one of the few companies that has properly planned for this kind of thing. It's possible. From where I sit, Coinbase has a reputation for being the, the exchange that can survive the darkest of winters. So I wouldn't be surprised if they survive this somehow. However, what you just said there, I think is worth kind of zooming in on for a second. I've been watching testimonies from Janet Yellen, from Jerome Powell, and I've been watching, watching testimonies from the Bank Oversight Committee where they just recently had one where they talked about crypto again. My takeaway is, is all of the people that are actually in charge of all of the committees that make decisions, they're all anti-crypto. There are pro-crypto people on those committees, but they're in the minority. And they have brought on witness after witness that is extremely hostile to all crypto. And there is even a senator that I'm blanking on his name right now, but he is working on a bill that essentially just says all crypto, even Bitcoin, is a security. I think it's what I'm getting at, and I don't think that's going to happen, but what I'm getting at is I think we're years out still. We're going to see at least two more years minimum of regulation by enforcement through the SEC, just based on these testimonies that I've watched. And I think it's probably not going to get wrapped up before the presidential election, unfortunately. It seems like there's also, you know, as we get closer to the launch of Fed now, there is just like an extra heap of FUD coming out about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Maybe we should just mention FedNow is the Federal Reserve's new system that's being rolled out this summer that is supposed to offer real-time dollar clearing, very similar to Signature Bank's Signet or Silvergate Bank's Silvergate Exchange Network. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with those banks. I don't I don't, I don't think I've heard of those. They don't, exist, they don't anymore. exist anymore. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, yeah. How weird is that? <laughs> I know. It's a total coincidence. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, but, you know, the, the way the Fed frames it is uh, we're we're thinking maybe there's not even a need for a CBDC once the Fed Fed now system rolls out, uh, which is it's just all interesting timing there, isn't it? I just think, OK, well, we'll see. It just seems like it just seems like another slight improvement to a system that has systemic issues that go way beyond the speed of settlement. I mean, yes, the speed of settlement is absolutely a problem, especially the you know hour limits. But it's not the main problem. No, no, it's not. Those banks were not put into receivership because they went bankrupt due to dollar settlement being too fast. They went bankrupt because <laughs> the entire U.S. financial system is based on the idea that U.S. Treasury securities are good liquid collateral that can always be redeemed at par for dollars. And they can't because of the way interest rates have been moving. As interest rates rise, and if debt is at a low interest rate, if you sell that debt into the market, you get less money for it. You get a lot less money for it the longer duration the security is. So that means that the Fed has had to, we're jumping ahead to banking now, they've had to create a new infinite quantitative easing facility, which is essentially a window where certain parties, probably most banks in the U.S., can take their U.S. Treasury securities that are underwater and get dollars for them, borrow against them at one-to-one -one and only pay 5% interest rate. Maybe 5% seems high, but the thing is, if I've got a $100 30-year treasury that I could sell today for $60, but I can get $100 from the Fed and only pay 5%, that's a great deal. So I'll do that. Jeez, that kind of sounds like a bailout of some kind. It kind of sounds like money creation. Yeah, it, it kind of does, right? Yeah. But before we enjoy the delightful ridiculousness of the Fed, <laughs> have you heard of Hindenburg Research? Sounds kind of ominous. When I say Hindenburg Research, what, what goes through your mind? 
I mean, I, I think of like a company that's looking into creating the next generation of balloon airships, ones that are safe, <laughs> economical and climate friendly. I am a huge fan of airships. Oh, dude, me too. I take an airship everywhere if I could. I imagine no more jet fuel cost, right? Much cheaper, much more environmentally friendly. I watched a documentary on YouTube about the Hindenburg or the first airship, maybe not the Hindenburg that where, where people would, you know, kind of go for a cruise on it. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable to take a cruise on the Hindenburg. It was very tight quarters. Yeah. Some of those early ones, but they did get some luxury ones for a little while. You can find some pictures if you go look online of they look more kind of like large boats up there now with like dining areas and fancy smoking rooms and all kinds of stuff. So they did make make some really tight, compact, economical ones. And then they made some like luxury. I th- in fact, like I think the Hindenburg was known for having some really nice dining rooms with beautiful views that look down. But back then, the way that they uh, cast glass, they couldn't make huge panes. Even if you look at the pictures, like the windows they're looking for, there are a lot of frames and stuff. It doesn't feel so open. Uh-huh. You know, it's not like a, yeah. a massive five meter wide. Oh, today it'd be great. Yeah, we would do it awesome today. Huge sheet of glass. Yeah, I, I'd be so for it. I'd prefer to do long travel, even if it added days. I'd prefer to do it in a in a balloon. It's a dream, right? To like be in a ship in the sky. But it's so different because the economics of ships are that like ships can hold almost infinite weight. Like you put so much weight in a ship. But an airship is the opposite. Like everything needs to be reduced in weight. So, you know, it's a really different economics, I think. But that's probably not what you're talking about today. That was quite a digression. Hindenburg Research is an investment research firm. And full disclosure, I'm very sympathetic to entities like Hindenburg Research because they're a short selling research firm. So what they do is they basically look around for scams that are trading like the next big thing. And then they buy a short position in the scam. And then they release a bunch of research that's like, look at what a piece of crap this is. It's a total scam. Someone should investigate them. And they generate a bunch of media coverage. And generally, they're attacked pretty violently for this. I don't think that Hindenburg Research was involved in the Wirecard scandal, but they have issued reports on, uh, if you remember, Nikola, which was a scam uh, electric car or hydrogen powered car company. Oh, yeah, yeah. Clover Health, that was a health insurance uh, scam. I think Lordstown Motors, which is another American electric vehicle company that, you know, there's sort of some misleading stuff there potentially. You know, this is kind of a short research company because they do all this research that's generally publicly available. I mean, they're not like hacking anybody's servers. They actually have to be very careful to not break the law because every time they issue a report like this, they are sued. You know, whether or not the report has inaccuracies, like they're going to be sued. And so they're the target of a lot of like legal troublemaking. You know, companies will hire counterintelligence agencies, not government ones, though I think governments will spy on activist short sellers like this. They'll get private counterintelligence groups stalking them, you know, threatening their family. Like this, this stuff happens. So, you know, I'm personally very happy that there are insane people who want to do short research and want to find fraud and make money on it. Because I think it's easy for markets to get very exuberant, very positive on things. And unless there's a way to financially make money for bumming everyone out with the truth, no one's going to do it. 
And so I like the existence of things like this. That said, Hindenburg has released a critical report about Block, which is kind of a beloved fintech company in the Bitcoin space. Is this Jack's company, right? Dorsey? Yeah, it's Jack Jack Dorsey's payments company. And they're supposedly working on a Bitcoin wallet. He's, of course, invested in Noster. And Cash App is a product of Block and is sort of famous because I think it uses the Lightning Network now and allows users to buy Bitcoin and send Bitcoin and cash out Bitcoin, etc. As well as, of course, send cash payments, which it's primarily used for. Essentially, the allegation is that Block is not being honest in its representations about the amount of activity on its platform and its user growth, potentially. It's a weird report because it starts out with about four pages of bullet points that are all kind of like punchy, emotional, exciting statements. They make the claim that there's so much illegal financial activity using Cash App that Cash App is referenced in numerous rap songs about how you can buy drugs using Cash App and you can pay for assassins using Cash App. Yeah, I don't really honestly see the problem with that. You know, I mean, that's kind of like, yeah, if you got a a payment system, people are going to use it for all sorts of things. I'm so shocked people used money for something that's illegal. Like, of course. It almost makes me like some of these allegations. I mean, there's a lot of them here. It makes me think, is this what a lot of banks and apps are going to deal with once the FedNow system is in place? Because what makes Cash App appealing is that you can send cash immediately to each other. You know, I know people that use this to pay rent. They pay landlords over the Cash App. Like, that's super common these days. Um, And it's just because it's instantaneous. There's no check involved. And what else are you going to do? You're going to you're going to give somebody, you know, a thousand bucks in in cash. Well, that's not going to happen. Are we going to write them a check? Well, a lot of people don't deal with checks anymore. Uh, They're on different banks. So you need you need the ability to send cash immediately. And that's why something like the Cash App is used for this kind of stuff. But it's maybe some of their KYC practices, as this seems to allegate. But it seems to me it's actually just the core functionality of being able to immediately send money to each other. And I think the fundamental argument here is that Cash App and Block say that, hey, this is an infinite uh, high margin growth business. It's going to grow forever and have great margin. But Hindenburg says, listen, the reality is that actually there is 60 to 75 percent downside from where Block is being valued today, because actually since Block is their stock price is helped by user activity on the platform, they have no incentive to reduce like fraudulent activity to like they're happy to have bots and stuff driving up uh, fees and metrics on the platform because it helps their sort of like non-standard valuation metrics and supports their stock price. Yeah, we got to be a disruptor. I honestly can't evaluate the claims. There are sort of these emotional statements about how people are doing bad stuff on the platform and you should stop it. In a sense, I sort of agree. You know, if you have a centralized platform like Cash App, you do have the ability to surveil users and to stop fraudulent activity. And in a sense, if you have that ability, you have to do it, right? Like you can't say, I have the ability to stop people from using Cash App to engage in human trafficking, but I'm not going to do it. Like who would accept that? The more I read this, it, it almost feels like a hit piece, you know, because like they talk specifically in here about their expectation of where the stock price should be. They talk in here about 
essentially their competitiveness as compared to PayPal, which just seems like an opinion when I, when I read that, like there's stuff in here that just, this is really intense. This, this is essentially a fundamental takedown of block and the cash app. And that's great, right? Because it's lovely when someone has a financial incentive to make a case very strongly, right? So one allegation that I was kind of interested to hear about is that Hindenburg Research says that Block and Cash App fueled huge amounts of pandemic relief fraud, that the way that people could claim their uh, pandemic stimmy checks via Cash App was very ripe for abuse. And there was a lot of scamming to get unemployment benefits paid via Cash App. And that's a really wild allegation because there was massive fraud in that program. I mean, Washington State lost over $200 million to fraud. That was, I mean, Jesus, that's like bigger than the state budget. We had a bad here. Yeah. Arizona also lost a bunch, right? They Arizona tried to recover $500 million, according to according to Hindenburg here. Oof. So what does this have to do with Bitcoin? So I think on the one hand, Cash App is a pretty famous app for buying Bitcoin because it's been promoted on other podcasts. I don't know if they still promote on Bitcoin podcasts now, but a lot of people bought their first Bitcoins during the last bull market via Cash App. And one thing we see time and time again is that because Bitcoin isn't a company, no one speaks for Bitcoin, anyone can kind of jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon to promote themselves and their products and their company. And Cash App certainly did that. I think that in some ways, as Bitcoiners, that makes it easy to think of Cash App as a reputable company because they chose Bitcoin. They didn't choose Ethereum. They didn't choose all of the ICO scams. On one hand, maybe that's true. Maybe there is some integrity in that decision. On the other hand, maybe it was a purely business decision where someone said, listen, these ICOs in Ethereum, they're going to get us in legal trouble. Whereas Bitcoin, there's something here. It gives us more cover, maybe. So I think that it's nice to just sort of read critical stuff about things you like and challenge your assumptions around that. I think there's also a story here about, you know, what is the limit to fintech applications like Cash App that are permissioned? Because if a system like Cash App that plugs into the traditional financial system is really useful and frictionless and people use it a lot, there's going to be a lot of criminal naughty activity on it. At which point does complying with rules to control that activity kill the app? That's kind of interesting, I think, to think about. And maybe this suggest conversations about Lightning and Bitcoin and and how we have useful Bitcoin and Lightning payment networks. Yeah, it maybe strikes playing a smarter long game here. They're kind of in a similar space to the Cash App, but they're more focused around sending money immediately and delivering over the Lightning network. This is going to be interesting to see if it develops into um, any kind of congressional testimony at some point in the future to see if it generates some sort of negative publicity for the Cash App. Because, I mean, that's what they've done here, right? Is they have created the talking points for any you know, a finance journalist or a you know, PR person <laughs> to, to run with. Now they've got, they've got ammunition here. Will it go anywhere? That's to be seen. And I think the question really does remain like what made cash app successful? Like you were, like you asked, I think it's the fact that they could push the boundary on some of this stuff that they could make it, they could take this slow U S financial system and make it seem, give it the illusion of instant payment and the ability to send money over the internet and create that kind of facade. And it's a product that the people want. And it might not be sustainable because in chasing after greater user activity, user growth, revenue, there are some alleged behaviors 
at Cash App that you know might be problematic. For instance, they may be price gouging on interchange fees, which are essentially payment processing fees for merchants because they use a small bank to process their fees that is not uh, restricted in how much interchange fees that can be charged, like larger banks are. So, you know, one of the takeaways is that the Cash App is a very slick app when you use it. I mean, obviously, you have to fully KYC, so it's not you know it's, it's totally KYC'd. Do not use it for anything illegal because that will come back to bite you. I mean, that's kind of the story of this article. But behind that slick interface, it is a mess of integrations with legacy banking and all sorts of crappy, inefficient backend infrastructure. And someone has to pay that cost. And definitely merchants are one group that pays that cost. And that's why, you know, I honestly hate paying with a credit card because that credit card payment, which is so convenient for uh, me as a, a consumer, that price is worked into everything I just bought for everybody, even those who are paying with cash. And, you know, I don't like that. I think that's inefficient. Yeah, I hope I hope this isn't an episode where we look back and go, oh, yeah, that's where we identified there was going to be a problem. And it was only a matter of time. I hope that's not one of these episodes, but I just got that vibe. For sure. I love how they end with this picture of Jack Dorsey looking like a total goofball in a tie dyed shirt with his like Mennonite beard. You know, you look at that picture and you're like, yeah, this is the guy behind it. Um, having second thoughts, you know, it's it's a great hit piece. It really is because they like they, they they show like FBI arrest cases where they cite using the cash app. You know, it really is it's just it. This is this should be actually taught in schools. Oh, like reading uh, reading short seller research and kind of evaluating it, thinking about it. Yeah. Yes. Like this is a textbook piece on how to do a takedown of a company around the user base, the customer base. They take down in this, they take down the fundamentals of the company. They take down the fundamentals of their user account, their stock, their user base and the CEO. (laughs) I feel dirty because I have the cash app now. I feel dirty after reading this thing. Well, okay. The reason why I jumped on this is I was looking at RoboSats and I thought, okay, so the way that you really use RoboSats in the US is you need to have the Cash App or Strike. And then what you do is you buy Bitcoin via RoboSats, but you pay via Strike or the Cash App. So on the surveilled KYC side of the transaction, there's just a dollar transaction. There's no Bitcoin associated with that. So the assumption is that it's difficult to correlate the dollar payment that's being surveilled on the centralized fintech platform and the Bitcoin payment that's shooting via the Lightning Network. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, because you combine that with uh, generating a new identity every time you use RoboSats. So yeah, I mean, even if you could track it back to an identity at RoboSats, in theory, it'd be hard to track it back to an individual person. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd be interested to talk to like a good guy chain analysis type person about how much privacy and security are you getting from this model? Because if it turns out that it's relatively easy to figure out people buying on RoboSats have like a clear pattern of behavior on Cash App, you would still generate a list of people who probably have Bitcoin, but you, you might not know exactly which UTXOs belong to them. So I wonder if that could protect you in a future that's sort of hostile to Bitcoiners or if that, I don't know, is maybe not enough. And so I think for if you're like, well, I don't want to do any KYC for the dollar side of the transaction, then I think you have to go to BISC and be uh, mailing postal money orders to people. And there are other payment options as well on uh, RoboSats. They're just not always as popular and they all have various amounts of KYC. You know, it's like one of those where the technology doesn't 
necessarily preclude other payment methods. It's just what's popular right now in the community is Cash App and Strike, uh, probably because they're some of the easiest apps to just connect to your bank account and then send over Lightning. And the issue is because the Lightning transaction is moving at the speed of light, you need to have a digital fiat transaction too. And every digital fiat transaction is KYC'd. So unless you're a big time criminal who can buy someone else's KYC data, which is, you know, illegal, don't do that. You're going to have to KYC with your own information. And there will be this record of you doing something in the traditional fiat financial system. It's just that it corresponds to something happening on the Lightning Network that may be less easy to observe and correlate with the activity in the traditional fiat system. Like with RoboSats, there's a lot of ways too, because now people are starting to integrate Albi too. So then it's like, how did you get the sats into Albi? Like there, anyways, my thinking is with RoboSats is it's a platform that will eventually just add more and more payment options as they get more popular. I kind of I kind of think though that the it's probably a safer bet than like buying through say something like Coinbase directly. That to me seems like a more one-to-one transaction. But it's hard to know too because so like the way I, when I've bought my RoboSats, I've used both Cash App and Strike App, but I didn't buy I didn't do the conversion at the time. I had a I had a standing balance like in the Cash App for example. I had a standing balance because somebody had sent me a payment and I had put money in there to do something else and like so I had a standing balance in there already that had probably been in there for 9 months. And then I sent some of that to buy sats. So I don't it's a it's a it feels like it's it's definitely traceable, but it's a lot more disconnected than when you just buy through Coinbase. And I agree with you entirely. I don't suggest anyone go and buy from Coinbase. At the same time, one issue with buying on RoboSats is that because you're receiving Lightning Bitcoin, if you don't already have a your own node with an active Lightning channel with inbound liquidity, it means that you have to receive that Lightning payment in someone else's Lightning wallet. It has to be not self-custodied to receive that first Lightning payment. And one way to do that, for instance, would be to use, say, the Bitcoin Beach wallet, because what you could do is you can sign up for the Bitcoin Beach wallet. And I believe that they require a phone number to do uh, essentially to prevent people from uh, Sybil attacking them and creating huge numbers of accounts, I think. But also, I think maybe they don't serve U.S. customers because they're concerned about the legal repercussions. So, you know, you give them like an El Salvadorian phone number if you happen to have one or something like that. You open up a Bitcoin Beach wallet on your phone, which is using the Bitcoin Beach uh, backend. And then you could receive lightning to your Bitcoin Beach wallet and then withdraw on-chain Bitcoin from there because they essentially they have this issue. It's called the free option problem where you receive lightning to them and then you make them pay the on-chain transaction to send you Bitcoin to your own wallet that you control. Huh. So, you know, I took a look. I'm looking at the order book right now on RoboSats, just filtering on USD and I want to buy. There's also a surprising amount on here. I've never done this, but now I think about it, it wouldn't be that hard. But there's a surprising amount of uh, sellers on here that are just accepting Tether. Yeah, but how do you get Tether? That's the problem. Like buying yeah, Tether is, yeah. is very hard like, unless you had a bunch of Bitcoin and you bought Tether at some point in the past. Right. <laughs> I suppose so. You got to get into it. There's not like an, a Tether ATM. I mean, if you made a Tether ATM, the FBI would have you in handcuffs in an hour. I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then there's some that do Venmo, of course. And there's some that do Zelly, of course. And then, yeah, a lot of Strike and Cash App, which is very convenient. And, you know, the premium right now for some of these is like 3%, 2%. The premiums are really reasonable right now. Might be time to stack some sats. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is... 
this is dangerous for the seller of Bitcoin because, you know, you're sending Lightning Bitcoin to me and I'm sending you a permissioned crappy fiat payment. And so I can receive your Bitcoin and then I can dispute with you that you sent me Bitcoin. Yeah. And maybe get that cash app payment rolled back or something. So it's risky to sell Bitcoin for fiat without a custodian or someone kind of enforcing the rules. You heard it here. Never sell. (laughs) (laughs) Solves that problem. Just never sell. Well, this is turning into a mammoth episode. (laughs) Yeah. Oops. I just wanted to share an article from friend of the show, Wolf Richter. Just kidding. He hates Bitcoin. It describes how the Federal Reserve is slamming on the brakes and stepping on the gas pedal at the same time. There's this narrative that inflation is a big problem and the Fed is going to solve that with rate hikes. And so there is a political consensus that if the Fed stops hiking rates, you know, markets are just going to get so excited and asset prices are going to shoot up again. And, you know, inflation is going to go crazy and the Fed will have no credibility. They always talk about credibility. And this kind of lets you know what's really going on here. Because the thing is, if the Federal Reserve had powerful tools that allowed them to manage the U.S. dollar financial system, they would not need credibility because they would use their tools and things would happen. Instead, the Federal Reserve is essentially a gigantic marketing company that just talks endlessly about how powerful their monetary tools are. And they're just, you know, they've got all these dials and levers controlling the monetary system. And sometimes we get a recession because, oh, whoops, sorry, we turned the dial too high and created a recession. But don't worry, we'll do better next time. If you step back and think about it, the narrative around the Fed is really weird. The base assumption is that, holy smokes, the Fed really are so powerful and they know exactly what they're doing. And sometimes they're they're just too effective. They Sometimes they want to calm things down and they accidentally create an, a recession. Oh, whoops, but they'll try better next time. So it's very weird, these debates around the Fed. And if you listen to the tone of my voice, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that I think that the quality of debate is really low. Um, and that's not just being a tinfoil hat wearing Bitcoiner. It's I think that there are critics of the Fed and they get very frustrated because they feel like they're shouting into the void because the consensus view is that the Fed is really powerful and really smart. So what's happening? Uh, Essentially, the banking system is under massive stress. There have been four or five bank failures, uh, big bank failures in the past couple of weeks. The Fed has to acknowledge that they've essentially created a situation where a lot of bank collateral is in long-term treasuries that are not able to be sold at a face value. They're, you know, their, their collateral is being marked down in value due to raising interest rates. And so they've created this new facility that I mentioned last week called BTFP, by the effing pivot, I think, is, uh, is my preferred ac- uh, understanding. <laughs> Nice. You know, and you can give the Fed your treasury bill that you can't really sell right now, and they'll give you 100 cents on the dollar and charge you 5%. And that'll keep your bank alive if you experience a bank run or other collateral issues. That's the goal, at least. Well, guess what? That is stealth quantitative easing because you're taking treasuries out of the financial system and putting it somewhere on the Fed's balance sheet. And they're going to hide it. They're going to say it's a, it's a loan. It's not on our balance sheet. It's just a loan. Actually, this might be a much more effective way to create financial system liquidity and asset bubbles. Because instead of giving bank reserves, which is this kind of useless monopoly money laundry token type money thing that lives on the Fed's balance sheet and doesn't move around the financial economy, 
these banks are actually getting dollars that they can give to depositors who withdraw. So this is actual transformation of treasury securities into real dollars. So to me, that looks highly uh, inflationary from a financial perspective. At the same time, Mm. the Fed is hiking interest rates, which is supposed to be deflationary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thus, slam on the gas and the brakes. Just doing a sweet burnout is what they're doing. This is what I was going to try to get to is I was trying to figure out if this maneuver of theirs was a less inflationary move. But I hadn't really thought about the fact that depositors are, are the beneficiaries in this case, which is often going to be just businesses and companies trying to do payroll, but also individuals, high, high net worth individuals that are just trying to take dollars out to go spend in the economy that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Yeah, it kind of reminds you of the STEMI checks beca- or the um, PPP loans, because that was actual government programs that resulted in people having money they could spend. And those were clearly highly inflationary because they created this demand shock and it was very fast. And so there was an additional supply of RVs and whatever people wanted to buy booze. So, uh, you know, prices shot up and we're now breaking the financial system by raising interest rates to solve that. Scratch my head. Doesn't seem like uh, the solution is appropriate to the problem. You're right, because, yeah, the activity is already done. It really is on a leg. And of course, if they don't get the terminal rate up to at least the inflation percentage, then uh, they haven't really effectively done anything. They still have a problem. So they have to they have to walk this line of at least trying to keep raising rates, because here's my here's my theory, dad. And you tell me if I'm way off base. My thinking is there's a calculus here. The Fed has fewer tools to reduce inflation and they have more tools to fix the breakage caused by rate hikes. And so their best option is to go hard on inflation and then use the broader set of tooling that they have available, as they like to call it, to shore up the banking industry that begins to hemorrhage as a result of their rate increases. Because they have to try to get as close to the actual run rate of inflation. And it's going to be maybe in our lifetime, they get it down to 2%, maybe, you know, who knows? I think their thought is, is that all they can, we've seen them be very ineffective with inflation and we've seen them be very effective with stimulus and backstopping. So it seems to me that's that's where they feel like they have the most power. So if they're going to pick a path, we'll drive this thing into the path where they have more tooling available to them. I think that is a very charitable view of the competency of the Federal Reserve. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that might be what they think of themselves, right? That might be what they think they're doing. Where I would say there's a different interpretation is that the economy is a complex system made up of billions of people following their own desires. And it does not react in a predictable linear fashion to new stimulus. It also clearly compensates. There's no predictable outcome to monetary or fiscal policy because the economy, billions of people, adapt to whatever is happening. What I suggest is that the endeavor of trying to actively manage the financial and monetary system is pure hubris. It's not a good idea. You should stop, and thus Bitcoin. But because 
We've already got systems in place to try to manage this economy. They're going to try and manage it into the ground. And that's what's going to happen eventually. And I'm not saying, you know, the end of the dollar is nigh. Who knows? But it could be because these are nonlinear systems. They break in exciting and different ways that are always a surprise. And the Fed is always surprised because they had to create a new four letter system, ETFP, to deal with the bank runs that started with Silvergate Bank. Which is incredible because they're the ones that raised the rates, right? If they knew what they were doing, they would have created that facility two years ago when they started raising rates or they would have not needed it because they would say, oh, well, you know, we'll do this one thing and then this collateral issue won't happen. But the simple fact is they didn't understand how strained and complex bank balance sheets were. And they didn't understand that when you just take the ACH transfer system, automated check clearing house or something, and the SWIFT system for wire transfers, and you take these two relatively slow payment processing systems, but then you put a website front end for moving money in and out of your bank in front of that, money moves out much faster now. Because before we had a web portal where I could say, I'm going to move money out of my Silicon Valley bank into my Wells Fargo bank, and just I can log in on my phone and do that. I had to go to the bank to make that transfer. And so that slowed down bank runs. Bank runs are faster now because everyone logs in at the same time. And as long as the website doesn't go down, they can hit send. And it just happens instantly. Even if the actual clearing is slower. Absolutely. One of the things that really drives me nuts about the Silicon Valley bank run is that they say it was a Twitter. It was, I saw it just yesterday. I was watching somebody's take the first Twitter fueled bank run, which is absolutely crap. Um, But it is true. There were some Slack channels too. (laughs) Oh yeah. A few Slack channels and text messages. There was also folks that knew months in advance. But what I think is true about it is that it was one of the first digital, fully digital era bank runs where we can communicate hyper effectively and we can remove the money digitally. And I think that element of it is true. And it's going to it does compound the situation. But I think one thing that I've reflected on, and it is what it is, I realized there was probably it was, I think, an election season and all of that. But looking back at it, if the Fed would have reacted six, nine, ten months, a year earlier on inflation, they could have taken a much slower ramp up here. Could have been even more gentle. It would have caused a lot less chaos. Um, but instead, they were too, Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell were too busy saying it's transitory and uh, that there would never be another financial crisis in their lifetime, is what Yellen said. And they were too busy ignoring it. And then they had to respond too late. And then when they did respond too late, they didn't plan for and expect the very obvious immediate damage that would be caused. Well, it's only obvious in retrospect. Is it, though? I mean, we said something will break, but people have been saying that the dollar would hyperinflate for 40 years. So it's easy to say that these people don't know what they're doing. That doesn't mean we do. You know, it's not like we could manage Federal Reserve monetary policy better than Jerome Powell. You do have to acknowledge there's a lot more people externally that are saying this is going to be a problem. This is likely going to be an issue. 100 percent. And they're like inflation was definitely one of those. Right. I think what I'm trying to express is just that the very idea that smart people can use clever models and they can control the world is preposterous. You know, if that was the case, the Soviet Union would have won the Cold War. The conclusion of history is that the world is chaotic. Economies are chaotic. And maybe a good way to handle that is to sort of embrace and guide the chaos, not try to 
regulate it or control it or or manage it centrally. That's the the fundamental point I'm getting at. And that's why I think that, you know, Bitcoin is so revolutionary because it's a system that is built to resist this centralizing, controlled tendency that every other monetary system has succumbed to and been destroyed by. Yeah. And it's reinforced by everybody participating in their own incentives. That's what I think when you when you really look at what Satoshi's true innovation was, is it was bringing these different technologies together and and really bringing these different incentive structures together. Node operators and miners and developers all have their own incentive structures. And so do, so do end users and you know users of the software. And they all have to be in alignment for a significant change to happen on the Bitcoin network. And that I think is it's I don't know is that if that's democracy, but it's a form of representation that we I don't think we have in any other system right now. And it's rules, not rulers. And it's rules by code, not law. And uh, that code is open source. And let's be honest, easier to understand than the legal system of our local country. <laughs> oh, perfect lead in to the White House paper. Oh, oh. Okay, so I love this report. And I think I said that when we got the last one last year that announced all of the studies of uh, cryptocurrency and whatnot, because essentially the White House, the president releases a yearly economic report, which is sent to Congress. And it talks about what the White House kind of wants to do or is concerned about or thinking about the economy. And there's a lot of crap in here. And a lot of it's wrong. And a lot of it's very silly. At the same time, I love the fact that they have to send the report, they have to write something, they have to kind of take it a little seriously. And so we get to see what decision makers are probably going to do, probably thinking. Like, it's not like this is 100% BS. And if you read it, you're going to be misled about what's happening next. Like, people generally tell you what they're thinking. It's very hard to conceal your intentions. And I think we can read the intentions pretty clearly in this report. It's got, uh, is it 10 chapters, 9 chapters, chapter 8? is about digital assets. The title is Relearning Economic Principles. It's very patronizing. Mm -hmm. The TLDR is the White House does not like digital assets, does not like Bitcoin, but is going to spend like one sixth of this presidential economic report telling you about Bitcoin, the functions of money and how Bitcoin works. Yeah. Describing some detail in some cases. If, if you went back in time eight years and you said, you know, the uh, presidential economic report is going to be 15 percent Bitcoin in 2023, you wouldn't have believed it. You'd be like, that's crazy. All right. That's an interesting metric in which to view this by. And in the only metric in which I can find a silver lining. <laughs> so what I think is really interesting about this is this is essentially a victory lap for the White House, for people who think that digital assets and Bitcoin are just you know so silly. And they're essentially congratulating themselves on the crash in crypto markets, which is really just the canary in the coal mine of a global financial crisis, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the, the whole patronizing tone is, oh, they're sure learning their lesson now. There was no fundamental value there. And uh, now the market's reflecting it. Of course, completely ignoring the fact that all of that's due to Fed tightening. Lots of lots and lots of assets have completely rock bottom. I mean, there's been, I think, $7 trillion of tech stock lost since Fed tightening started. So, you know, yeah, it's cute. It's patronizingly cute. But this report is fascinating because it actually lets you know that right now there is an essentially anti-private enterprise view towards the financial system being expressed by the White House because they start actually start the report talking about the 1907 trust crisis in the U.S. when trust companies 
companies, which were basically a sort of less well-regulated bank, experienced bank runs because they didn't have adequate deposit liquidity. They took all the deposits, made loans, and then they couldn't redeem deposits when people wanted their money back. And this was resolved by JP Morgan, the JP Morgan, coming in and basically buying a bunch of these trusts for pennies on the dollar and sort of stemming the crisis. And this experience led to the creation of the Federal Reserve, which was initially not a government organization. It was a private organization literally created in a shadowy nighttime meeting on an island called Jekyll Island. So, I mean, if you look at the details, you're like, Jesus, this sounds like a conspiracy. But the conclusion is private markets are good at letting people try to make money. But what about the public interest? We need to have entities that protect the public interest in this model. That's the Federal Reserve. And it's interesting because the public interest is sort of a political question. What is the public interest? And in my view, the public interest, as it's defined in this system, is essentially having too big to fail banks that privatize profits and nationalize losses. And I think that's very problematic and unfair. Right. And I would say they argue that the ability to surveil the in and outs and various transactions is a public good. It's a net benefit for the public and a system that if the public is going to trust in a system, it needs to have those capabilities. And that is patently false because we've linked in the past to research on the efficacy of anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. And the data is pretty obvious that these rules impose a huge cost on the banking system, have driven many small banks that are very useful to local communities out of business, have unbanked millions of people around the world, and essentially foster a hierarchical, unfair economic system that helps concentrate wealth and power in society. It's bad, but you can't question it because the moment you say KYC and AML is bad, the next statement is, well, do you support exploiting children or child slavery or drugs or, you know, terrorism, which is just a completely emotional and BS rebuttal? Because at the end of the day, no, no one supports those things. Do we need to weaponize every financial transaction in the world to fight those things? No, clearly not. Yeah, I think their argument is essentially, it's not directly implied, but they they have a term about essentially decentralized, unmonitored blockchains or something like that. You might remember how they call it, but those are risky and dangerous because you can't monitor them properly, which is also wrong. But there's a lot in here that's wrong. That's why I found it kind of upsetting. I thought maybe we were going to see Biden be the president that oversaw clear, sensible regulations get implemented. You know, I thought I was looking forward. I was hoping, you know, to look back and go, hey, you know, it was a rough few years. Inflation really sucked, but at least we got all this stuff settled and now Bitcoin's ripping or something. But it's not going to be that. It's going to be an awful slog. This is, to me, part of the they fight you stuff because there's ridiculous things in here about the blockchain. There's ridiculous things in there about proof of work and all of it. I just, to me, I found it kind of really disappointing that the people in charge are, are this disconnected. Like they talk about how Bitcoin is yet to announce a transition to proof of stake as if the Bitcoin CEO is discussing with the board of the Bitcoin corporation about a transition on their core technology. And once they have it ready, they're going to do like a keynote and they're going to stream an announcement where the CEO of Bitcoin gets up on stage and announces at the Bitcoin developer conference that they're switching to proof of stake. Like like such a thing's even possible. It's just completely disconnected from reality. Yet four pages are spent explaining how Bitcoin works, including how hash functions work. There's a little diagram with 
almost handwritten notes about how blocks in a blockchain chain together to create this sequence of transactions that's immutable. I mean, this is kind of great. It's just fascinating because if you really read this unemotionally, there are all these bad takes, there are all these statements that, oh, Bitcoin doesn't work because it's still easier to use the US dollar for most transactions. Yes, of course, the dollar is still a larger monetary network. It's still, therefore, Mm -hmm. more useful for spending than Bitcoin. Will it remain so in the future? Well, and Bitcoin also boils the ocean, which is always one that gets me going. Right, which is, you know, just patently not true. It uses less than 1% of the world's energy. That's literally a rounding error. So why do we care so much about Bitcoin and we don't care about the steel industry? And the answer is there are many reasons. There's a a recency bias. People are just accept the status quo and they challenge the new thing. I get it. I like steel. I use steel. What about the tumbler dryer? What about Christmas lights? What about all the vanity things? I mean, I love all those things. All these AI projects that people are spinning up that are burning CPU and GPU like mad. Hold on. Can we have a digression? Thank you so much for helping me with Whisper CPU. Uh, I, I made a transcript of last week's episode, but I could not upload yeah. it. So apologies no. to Ginformatique. Still working on it. Hit me up. I'll email it to you if it's useful. You can always try just putting this SRT file up on there and see what it does. It doesn't like Maybe it. some clients wouldn't. doesn't oh, like it. okay. 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 Yeah, it's like you know, I, it wants a text file, which I... Uh. So any super experienced transcoding podcasters, Dave Jones, if you're listening, I'm on Mastodon or wherever you find me. I'll, I'll accept any help. Help, help a guy transcribe. Yeah. We're working on a tour over the JBN. So when we get things figured out, we'll, we'll share the love. We'll figure it out. And of course, this is just one section of the report. There's stuff about uh, the environment. There's stuff about education in here. I haven't read the other sections, so can't comment. But um, I, I suggest people check it out. And uh, it's really interesting to see how the powers that be talk about these issues and think about them. And I think that if you read this report, you will be unsurprised by continuing anti-Bitcoin regulatory action. At the same time, Bitcoin really does not care at all. Yeah, that's just it. It doesn't care. And as long as you uh, get those sats off in exchange and you put them in your own offline wallet, you don't have to care either. And I'm looking forward to the proof of stake Bitcoin fork. Go ahead and fork it. Yeah. I will happily claim those coins and sell them for Bitcoin. That sounds great. Let's do it. Let's go. Fork it. Let us know. We'll uh, we'll take a look. Yeah. Should be great. I can't wait to buy a whole bunch so I can be a whale. That's uh, a thousand Bitcoin, right? I think it's got to be like uh, stats or something. It's got to have because you got to have the stake in there, right? So they're going to be stats now. Oh, not of stats. stats. It'll be stats. Yeah. Stakes. Yeah. Now, I have a Federal Reserve press release from March 19th, and I think I touched on it briefly last week. But just FYI, global central banks are freaking out because they're announcing that their dollar swap lines with the U.S. central bank, where a foreign central bank can get dollars for seven days from the Federal Reserve and then give them to local banks. These operations, instead of being a weekly auction, are now daily auctions that will so it'll make it more available to banks around the world. So when I read this, I think, gosh, if you wanted to tell me that there is a global banking crisis, this is the press release that lets me know. <laughs> yeah, well, and they continue since then. There have been several. Just a couple hours ago, some European banks also just released a press release that essentially read, don't worry, everything's fine. Everything's great. We have we have absolute confidence in the banking sector. I feel like I've seen one of those a day right now, which makes me completely have no confidence in the banking sector. These swap lines are kind of interesting because in the 1970s, there was a big question from global central bankers to the U.S. Fed 
in which they said, listen, there are a lot of dollars in the world outside of the United States. And these euro dollars do not have a lender of last resort. We can experience dollar bank runs in Europe, in Asia. In that situation, can our foreign banking system rely on the U.S. Federal Reserve for a backstop? Will you essentially help us give dollars to redeem deposits in our foreign banking system so we do not have a banking crisis in another country that will then transmit via global dollar markets to the United States? And in the 1970s, the Fed said, you're on your own, kids. But since 2008, the answer has been, yes, yes, please take our dollars, take them all. So that's how things have evolved. What is like the next warning sign I should watch for? Because it feels like all of these, all these announcements, when I see them say, everything's great, we've got some liquidity coming in, don't worry, absolute confidence. I just keep seeing that tweet from Do Kwan, steady lads, more liquidity is coming, steady lads. And that's what I see here from all these bankers is steady lads. And I can't think, I can't help but think like, is, are we, are we going to see everything settle down now with this new program, this uh, by the pivot program? Or is this the beginning of a rolling problem that seems to be spreading from institution to institution? I just don't understand it well enough to know what kind of scope we could be looking at, or if we do know yet. It's impossible to know because it's such a complicated issue. There's no one signal. Some things that I think professional financial analysts look at are euro dollar money market curves, because as these curves invert, as short-term interest rates become lower than long-term interest rates on these euro dollar operations, what that's saying is people are hedging. People are preparing Mm -hmm. for bad outcomes. And oddly enough, if everyone prepares for a bad outcome, it happens. So there's this weird psychological reflexivity, whatever, zeitgeist in human behavior. That's one thing. Another thing is in bond markets, there's this thing called credit default swaps, and it's essentially insurance on bond defaults. And we see that as the price of insurance rises, the risk of default increases. And so credit default swaps are something that Bitcoin personality Greg Foss talks a lot about how Bitcoin is essentially costless insurance on sovereign debt bond defaults. So as CDSs get more expensive and the price of Bitcoin pumps, that might be a sign that you know, there are problems in sovereign debt markets and, and other debt markets. Yeah, I guess it, it doesn't, we don't really know how far it goes, but it doesn't signal things are great. <laughs> we know that. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my other pod, the self-hosted show. Brand new episode 93 came out, selfhosted.show slash 93. And we take a look at transitioning to Podman from Docker. Docker Hub is making some changes that are a little anti-open source and some projects are going to have to move somewhere else. So we thought, well, how far do you take this? What if you wanted to remove your dependency on Docker, Docker Hub altogether? Could you transition to something else? So we take a look at that. Plus, I talk about how my next cloud blew up and then we answer some questions. It's a packed episode, selfhosted.show slash 93. And this week's Bitcoin Optech is heavy on the changes to software and kind of light on everything else. The thing that kind of jumped out at me, which is odd, I, I like I'm kind of surprised that it showed up in here was there is a Gibraltar bank called Zappo that actually built a institutional custody solution that Coinbase purchased from them. And so I think that is now Coinbase custody. But Zappo still operates independently in Gibraltar, which is a European, I want to say city state. It's like sort of a British colony, kind of. And they have a small bank there with a very interesting Gibraltar insurance scheme. So deposits in this bank are insured up to 100,000 euros. But if you need to use that insurance, you get paid out in British pounds. 
hard to understand why that is the case, but I think that's just kind of like colonial legal detritus or something. But this bank Zappo actually has lightning integration. Uh, you can hold a Bitcoin in your account there and you can also make lightning payments. So they kind of offer a custodial lightning wallet to their customers. That's so great. I want that. I want I want all these institutions to implement lightning on the back end. Lightning all the things, Dad. It'd be so great and a cheap way to move your funds around. So it's nice to see it. I don't know if uh, it's very applicable, but I love to see it. I like to see the Optech covering uh, the Breeze Lightning SDK just because I hope that goes somewhere. It's an open source SDK for mobile devs who want to integrate lightning payments into their app. That's awesome. And uh, we need a lot of solutions there because it's a very hard problem to solve when you think about custody and all of that on a mobile device. And then I know the one you were probably going to mention also is the BTC Pay Server CoinJoin plugin has officially been released, which is such an excellent idea. That said, I believe it's a Wasabi-based CoinJoin, and Wasabi Wallet has been very controversial because they enabled chain surveillance of CoinJoin participants. Because there's a company called ZK Snacks that does development of Wasabi Wallet and the Wabi Sabi CoinJoin protocol, they wanted to create some legal protection for their business. And so they pay for chain surveillance of people getting ready to do CoinJoin. And they will not allow you to CoinJoin if they, uh, if the chain surveillance company identifies your inputs as being risky or coming from a criminal activity. And so my question is, well, if I wanted privacy from a chain surveillance company, but you're working with a chain surveillance company to gatekeep who gets privacy, then I think you can F off to the sun is my two cents. Also, though, Sparrow 1.7.3 was released with BIP 129 support for multi-sig wallets. And there's a new wallet. Uh, this is not a recommendation, but there is one I want to check out. Stack Wallet just added coin control. But the reason why I want to check it out is it's open source and it appears to have support for a handful of other common altcoins. And we hear from the audience from time to time, like, what should I do? I want to self-custody this other these other altcoins that I experimented around with. It supports five different cryptocurrencies. I'm not even sure which ones, but in the past, I've said Exodus is one of those apps that you could you could run locally and, and self-custody and do multiple different ones. But Stack Wallet is fully open source and seems to be getting frequent updates and supports custom local nodes. And so that's one that I think I'm going to put on my list to investigate in the future. And it supports Linux. But there's a deal breaker here for you. Oh, is there? The only OS supported for building is Ubuntu 20.04. Oh, yeah. I can probably still make that work. I have my ways with Nix OS. I have my ways. Wow. You also need 100 gigabytes of storage to build the wallet. That's uh, that's chonky. What? It's not just for the blockchain? No, that's that. I think that's for the build. Oh, my goodness. If you want to build it locally. So you don't have to build it locally. I mean, I'm uh, sure you can. Oh, and it's a Flutter app. You could too, download the binaries from GitHub and just run it. But if you wanted to build it yourself, you know, go full yeah. open source, verify. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting that it's using Flutter on the front end. Is Flutter the huh. the Google thing that like compiles mm -hmm. across different like to Android yeah. and it's kind of like one of the alternatives to Electron because it builds to native binaries on each platform that it runs. So you get sort of the development advantages of Electron, but you get the performance advantages in theory of a local app. Uh, in theory. Well, yeah, because I think there's still some 
like web UI components and things like that probably take a little bit longer to render, but it is better and less overhead than an Electron app. And just for listeners who might not be familiar, can you briefly describe what an Electron app does and where you might use one? It's a self-contained web app that on the back end is using essentially Chromium or Google Chrome to render the entire application. And so you have an entire web browser under there, and then you have a super complex web application on top of that designed to look like a desktop application. And it uses a considerable amount of RAM. Slack is probably one of the most famous, and it's a heavily, 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 heavily optimized app, and it still has issues. And there's a bunch of others. When you said that, I was immediately thinking, this sounds like Slack. Mm -hmm. You turn on Slack and suddenly like your computer's fans are screaming and it's getting hot. Yep. And Slack's sort of the best case scenario in terms of, although they also run on an older version of the Electron runtime. That's the other problem is, you know, these web browsers have security problems. The developers have to stay on top of that every time Google issues a new security update to Chrome, which is essentially monthly. And none of them do. None of them can. So you also have, a, I think, a higher security vulnerability surface with Electron. So I avoid any kind of Electron-based applications. If you can, that's why I was kind of looking for alternatives. And on the back end, they're using Rust. So they're using Rust to build the core application and Flutter for the front end of the UI with the stack wallet. Inevitably, people end up getting altcoins. It just seems to be the way the trajectory works. If people get sucked into it, maybe they want something that's cheaper. They think something's going to moon. It's part of their learning process. And then they inevitably, eventually understand the difference between the altcoins and Bitcoin. But then you end up, what do you do with them? Like, I had a credit card that I accidentally had Ethereum rewards turned on. And so now I've got a, a tiny amount of Ethereum. Like, what do I even do with it? I, I don't know. I, I should probably take it off that custodian and put it in some app somewhere. So maybe, maybe Stacker Wallet's it. Maybe. Maybe I'll just give it away. <laughs> maybe I'll sell it. Maybe I should sell it right now, actually. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dadpod at protonmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Bitcoin Dadpod. But the best place to chat is the show Matrix channel. Using a Matrix client like Element, you can check out the details in the show notes. And we had several boosts this week. Yeah, Baffo came in with our biggest boost this week, 51,510 sats. No message, but I still just wanted to give a shout out since that is our baller boost this week. Baffo send good boost. Petar boosted in 12,345 sats. I love your breakdown of the ongoing banking crisis. Huge fan of graphene and big fan of this show. Keep it coming. Thanks so much, Petar, for that sequential boost. Yeah, it's nice to hear from you, Petar. A row of ducks boosts in a big old McDuck row of ducks, 22,222 sats, and just says, appreciate the excellent show, guys. Keep it up. Bobby boosted in 10,000 sats. Thanks for addressing my email on the podcast, Macaroons. That was perfect. I was not actually expecting an email reply. Thank you both for also considering creating lightning addresses. And I think I did. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob uh, also talked about sending recurring boosts. And so I did create, uh, I think, using Albi, like an address that can receive an LN URL oh, or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, right. I think I had to do something else. I can't recall. So I did it. I'll look at the email I sent Bob and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I still need to look into it. I am totally up for it, though. Uh, and I appreciate Bob doing some of the groundwork there. Scott comes in with 5,000 sats. Thank you guys for all the RoboSats talk. I finally doubled down and made my first peer-to-peer -peer trade. It was a lot smoother than I anticipated, although it seems they fixed the issue you guys have been discussing regarding RoboSats being Lightning only. There is now an option to receive your sats on chain to an on-chain address 
via a swap done with the RoboSats coordinator. This does seem like it could impose some trust risk if RoboSats didn't do the swap and instead walked off after the seller sent over the Lightning payment, and I can see there being some liquidity limitations depending on the size of their channels. RoboSats does explain the feature on their website. Um, you can find it at learn.robosats.com. I haven't tested it, but I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Thanks, as always, for the fantastic content. I would need to probably learn more about how the on-chain payout works. I mean, part of the nice aspect of RoboSats is some of the privacy you get using it. I don't know if that would change. I suppose one thing you could always do is generate a new address, then coin join everything you received there before you swept it to your cold wallet. And there's costs involved because with RoboSats, you're going to pay a 1% to 3% spread. Then you're going to pay 1% mm -hmm. for the coin join. After two or three transactions and full blocks full of ordinals, you're going to be like, hey, where'd my money go? You know, so there's a cost yeah. to all this, which... Yeah, you know, it's not perfect. And it's more expensive to move. There's more of a higher fee to move it on chain than there is over Lightning, too. There are a lot of trade-offs here. I actually looked at the learn.robosats uh, website, and I think they have pretty good documentation, though I have not tried a on-chain payment yet from RoboSats, so I can't comment. Smart Growth sends in two boosts close to my heart, both 5,000 sats. Thank you so much. I tried the time for money exchange with a Start9 uh, side. A Start9 is a node in a box. I think it's a Raspberry Pi or a Rock Pi or something, but it's kind of pre-configured by a company called Start9. Unfortunately, it's not an amazing time saver. Oh, too bad. And I still don't have anything set up because it still requires a few hours to configure everything, which I lack between a full-time job, family, and the farm. Oof, I feel that. And I only have a full-time job and a family, no farm. No farm, yeah. I want your smart growth. Uh, you may have told us where you're at, but if you're in the Pacific Northwest, I'll come set up a node for you. Oh, yeah, I'll come too. We'll do a little farming as well. Yes, meet the fam. Well, smart growth finishes saying, still waiting on a true time-saving solution. The time-saving solution is to get your Bitcoin dad and Chris over there to set things <laughs> up for you. He continues, I'm setting up my BTC pay server for myself and a couple other open-minded farmers out here. I have not yet delved into setting up and managing a lightning channel, so I'm quite hesitant. Is there a good solution to this issue as on-chain fees keep climbing? I don't have the time to learn a bunch and maintain a liquidity balance that requires more than 15 minutes a week. Thanks for your time and content. Have a great week. Oh man, smart growth is just going at it. I'm loving this. This is so awesome. Setting up this BTC pay server for a couple other farmers and himself out there. That's God, when I saw that boost, I think my mood improved by like a solid 30%. It was re really great to see that. I think smart growth with the aside of the initial setup, which is going to take some investment of time, I don't think you're going to really have to worry much about liquidity. You could easily manage it within that 15 minute window. You hear dad and I talking about inbound liquidity problems because we have people that boost in various amounts unpredictably, which is fantastic. Not complaining at all, but uh, it just means that you have to constantly manage the liquidity where you'll probably have things that are closer to actual sales. You know, you'll invoice somebody something or a farmer will invoice somebody and then that somebody will make a payment and it's going to be a much more one-to-one -one and manageable situation. And so you really don't really probably have to worry about liquidity just disappearing all of a sudden because you got a random large boost. There are tools out there that I've been experimenting with now for about six months and have had good results. I will recommend lightningnetwork.plus. It is essentially a way to just open up channels between multiple node participants where you guarantee a certain amount of sats for a certain amount of time. It helps you manage all of that. That's one way. You can, there's other ways you can purchase inbound liquidity as well if you need that. Uh, but really, what you could probably do is like on the back end, right? I have node uh, to node channel set up between like my node and Brent's node. And we use that for uh, some of the splits and things like that. So you may end up finding that it's a 
pretty manageable issue. Not really something you have to really concern yourself with unless you have very large purchasers that are outside your circle of users that want to come in one day and either receive a large payment or make a very large payment. And then you would have to manage the liquidity and make sure you have enough on a channel. But outside of that, I don't really think you're going to have any surprises. And if it's such a large payment, it might make sense to make it on chain. True. Smart growth, I just recommend trying to make the time and going for it. And please feel free to reach out. You know, we're always happy to help our community get more into Bitcoin. Once you get things set up, we'll happily open a channel to you to get you some inbound liquidity. And uh, we're just really excited that you're taking a stab at this, trying to incorporate Bitcoin and Lightning into your business. And we hope that it is uh, successful and useful for you. Yeah, I find it particularly exciting when it's applied to the farming industry. Feels like that could have a lot of long-term potential. So anything we can do to help. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a statchel of sticks, I think, right? 11,111 sats. This episode was amazing, referring to last episode. So glad I found you guys. Everything coming out of your mouths makes so much sense. Oh, geez, thanks. I really appreciate your effort in breaking down all these complex topics for dummies like me. Fast becoming one of my favorite podcasts. Mere Mortals, you're becoming one of my favorite boosters. Thank you for the support. Thank you so much. It's really kind of you to say so. Yeah. And thank you, everybody who streams sats or maybe boosted in under the thousand cutoff or boosted in without a message. Thank you very much. And if you'd like to send a message into the show, you got two routes before you. You can take the path of the podcasting adventure and get a new podcast app. Support all the new features at newpodcastapps.com. Or you can keep your podcast app and go the path of Albi at getalbi.com. Top it off, which you can do directly inside of it with MoonPay. And then head over to the podcast index. You find your Bitcoin dad pod on the podcast index, which is probably linked in the show notes. So you don't even have to go find it. And then you can just boost right there from the webpage, get your message into the show and support this here podcast, which is sustained and supported by your boosts. If you got some value, enjoyment or entertainment out of the show, one of the best ways to keep it going is by sending a boost in and get your message read on the show at the same time. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, March 24th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with still staking that Luna. It's Chris. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Hold steady, lads. Deploying more capital. <laughs>